1 Corinthians chapter 7. I want to read verses 1 through 9, and then I'm going to jump over to verses 39 and 40, and we're going to take all of these verses together. So verses 1 through 9, and then 39 through 40. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Verse 39, A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she's happier if she remains as she is, and I think that I too have the Spirit of God. Well, may God add His blessing to the reading of His Word. You may have a seat. Last Lord's Day, we sort of, like a company of shepherds, we stood atop a high hill and just sort of surveyed the landscape of this chapter just to get a, an idea of where we're going, what is contained in this chapter. And if any of you were able to read back through the chapter a time or two this week, you've hopefully been able to see it more clearly that the Apostle Paul deals with several different categories of people. He addresses or talks to married Christians, widowed Christians, Christians who are married to non-Christians, Christians who have never been married, and all under what is probably the the, the central theme in verses 17 through 24, this idea of living as you were called to live. And I summarize that with that ancient axiom of the Christian faith that grace has not come to destroy nature but to restore it or to elevate it. That The idea is that becoming a Christian doesn't completely erase everything that God put into man, men and women as human beings but it does come to elevate and restore what has been destructed or deconstructed by the fall and by sin. Now, we then took a, a little bit to survey what Paul assumes in all of his teaching, even though he doesn't say it in this chapter. The, the whole, what we would call the redemptive historical sweep of the idea of marriage. We, we, we noted that marriage between a man and a woman, is an earthly type of a heavenly reality. It is a picture that God has given us as creatures in time to point to the great love between Christ and His church that actually began before eternity. And Paul says it very explicitly in Ephesians 5, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. We noted that even after the entrance of sin, marriage is still good, although it is now difficult, as with everything else in the world. It becomes more difficult because, since the fall, marriage is always a joining or a union of two sinners. You find the two holiest people you'll, you'll find in the world, the two, two purest saints in the world, and bring them to the marriage altar and that, the, the, whoever's officiating is talking to, to two sinners. And everybody else is watching two sinners get married. And those two sinners might have very high and lofty thoughts of themselves until they go home from that service and begin to live with each other. And they're going to find out, 
I've married a sinner. And my spouse, lo and behold, my spouse married a sinner. Far worse than, than you, you really knew before that. We saw that through the goodness and loving kindness of God, marriage can be a stage upon which God's grace is made perfect through our weakness. That we shouldn't downplay the weaknesses that come to the surface in marriage. Don't downplay it. Don't act like it's not there. Let God show His strength perfect. No longer as a single person, but as a married couple. Take your weaknesses to the Lord. And He will show how strong He really is. We also noted that marriage will someday come to an end when the bride, that is the church, is forever with the bridegroom. We'll no longer need the type. And though that's hard for us married folks to imagine, it will be better. And our love for our spouse will surpass anything that we ever experienced in this life. Uh, it will outshine our love for our spouse like the, the light of the sun outshines uh, a matchstick that's about to go out. We have to take that in faith because we can't comprehend it. But all of that, Paul assumes. And then he begins to address these issues. Now before we begin to take the various parts of this chapter separately, I want to warn you about my approach to all of this, and in particular this first section, but throughout. The goal of, of preaching is the edification of the body of Christ. Always. The edification of the body. The edification of the saints. Maximum edification. Maximum edification. That's always the goal. As Think about it like medicine. There are medicines, and, and we, most of us would say, speaking generally, the goal of medicine is to make you get better. But there are some medicines that when you're sick, they, they help you to get better. But if you take them when you're healthy or you take them wrongly, they'll kill you. They won't be good for you. And those same medicines that might help you when you're sick, for another person, they might always be dangerous because of some weakness that person has in their body. They can't take that medicine, which for you is sometimes good, but also for you could also be sometimes bad. And so there has to be some sort of discernment about the use of medicine. When to take it, when not to take it, what kind of person should take this or that. And preaching is very often the same way. We, we want to aim at the edification of the body as a whole, understanding that there are some subjects or some doctrines or ways of approaching subjects or doctrines that are going to be less useful for some than they are for others and more useful for some than they are for others. And neither of those might be the most edifying in a congregational setting, in a, in a mixed company like this. I think, as we just read, we can tell that there are some things in this chapter, especially in this first section, that are sensitive subjects. If for no other reason, then we're sitting in a congregation of men and women, boys and girls of all ages, different, different uh, levels of understanding and capacity. And so as we walk through these subjects, I want you to know that I'm making a conscious effort to, number one, deal with the heart of the text and, and the, the matter, the substance, and also avoid details that would draw us away from what is most edifying. And in light of that, you might have questions about what the things that we read here that I don't answer in the sermon. And, and if that's the case, that can be dealt with privately um, unless the entire congregation comes to me with the same question. I'm going to take a, a, an individual or two coming to me about with a question. I'm going to take that as a, a, a sign that... Overall, the word was unto edification, and for some, they might need a little more uh, potent medicine, but that's okay. Uh, it might seem like certain matters are skipped over or avoided, and that is absolutely true. Again, if you have questions about those things, feel free to bring them up privately. Uh, in the, the re resurgence of expository preaching, it's often said, well, if you preach verse by verse through books of the Bible, you, you don't get to skip anything. That's, that's a silly thing to say. Uh, preachers skip stuff all the time. 
and they can absolutely skip particular details and applications of certain texts as they wish. Uh, an approach to preaching doesn't require a person to hit every single topic uh, or every single detail of a topic. Also, I think based on uh, the words of Christ and some statements by the Apostle Paul, it's actually wise in teaching the counsel of God to say, there are some things that I would like to give you that you're not ready for yet. Now, that doesn't mean everybody's not ready, but there might be some who are not ready to hear certain things. Or there might be times when you'd say, I would love to go further. I would love to give you meat, but you're, you're, you're in need of milk. Paul does that. Christ does that. Uh, and so uh, this idea that, well, if, if a particular topic isn't addressed or if a, a certain verse or wording isn't spoken from the pulpit, that a man is trying to hide things or conceal things, that, that's silly. The ministry of the Word, as we're learning it on Sunday evenings, is far more broad than just the pulpit. Uh, the, the pastors do far more than just preach. If there are questions or concerns, um, feel free to ask. But I say that to say, if you've come to 1 Corinthians 7 uh, and, and you're hoping that we're going to address matters that tend to just endless, vain, unnecessary curiosities or questions or that things that are really going to distract people from, from the gospel or the, the main content of, 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 the, of the gospel... Uh, I'm not going to do that. I don't have any desire. I, I, there was a time when I thought it was cool, and everybody thought it was cool, but, uh, or all the young men thought it was cool. Um, there was a time when it was cool, but it, it's not cool to preach in a way that's, uh, that borders on the edgy and the uh, embarrassing or that resembles some sort of the, the, the provocative content of, of tabloids and Jerry Springer and that sort of thing. Uh, if you're interested in that, if your ears like that or your eyes like that, they need to be washed with the blood of Christ. That's disgusting. And, and there are things that ought to be kept in private conversation. And there are things that can, be, can go out in public and, and we could expect everybody to, to be fed from them. So hopefully you, you get that the way I'm moving through this is not to get into the, the nitty-gritty, edgy details of what it means to be a married couple. Uh, that's, that's not my job as a preacher in a public setting. So... We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 9, and then I'm going to put 39 and 40 with it because they also address the plight of widows. So the first thing that we see in verses 1 through 2a is the situation which Paul addresses. In the first two verses of this chapter, we're given a clue about the real situation in Corinth to which Paul was writing. Now, you look there at verse 1, we noted last week as we were just surveying the chapter, he says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote. So Paul's method here is to take their concerns one by one. So we know that it's the Corinthians and, and their real, actual experience which is driving him or driving the thought through this chapter. Th these questions are not theory for them. These are things that they're living, and he's writing to address them. And notice the first reference that Paul gives to a matter about which they had written. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Or literally, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Possibly could even be translated, it is good for a man not to touch his wife. More than likely, as I said last week, this is another one of those Corinthian slogans or something that they had said, maybe in, in passing, that he has to say, oh, I'm, I'm going to need to address that, what you said there. Maybe in the letter that they had written to him, they had said something and maybe in, in writing they had said, after all, we know that it's good for a man not to touch a woman. And he thought, um, let me make sure I know what you mean by that. Let me make sure that when you say that, you're saying that in its proper context. Or maybe they had even said it's good for a man not to, to touch his wife. But this was clearly an ideology that had been adopted. Now where did this come from? Where would they get the idea? 
that it's good for a man not to touch a woman or that it's good for a man not to touch his wife. Where would that come from? Well, we can only guess. The Greco-Roman world into which Paul was writing, the world that the Corinthians had come out of in being converted, but also the world in which they still live their lives every day, was a world known for promiscuity. It was not a place known for purity in any form. Serial divorce was common. Sexual immorality was rampant. It was a part of the pagan ritualistic worship even. And marriage was, we could almost say, practically forced upon the young or the divorced or the widowed for many different reasons, often just for appearances. You don't want to look like nobody likes you, nobody wants you, you're all alone. You ought to get married. And there were even timelines which people had set for remarriage. If you've been divorced, you got six months or six weeks, I can't remember. You, got to, you need to get married. If your spouse has died, we'll give you a year. But after that, you should be getting back into the, the, the married life uh, men would want offspring and heirs to their households, things like that. Um, but they were not a pure or moral people, even in all that. The general drift of Corinthian society was that you didn't, two points, you don't stay single and you don't stay pure. Both of those. You say, well, I'm married. Well, e- even if you're married, there's no reason to, to maintain any type of purity within that marriage. And if you're not married, there's no reason to maintain uh, purity prior to marriage or outside of marriage. You don't stay single and you don't stay pure. Intro the Apostle Paul. He shows up, preaches the gospel. People to begin, con- or begin to be converted. He preaches amongst them for 18 months. He's laboring night and day to see Christ formed in them. He's walking them through the Scriptures. He's teaching them the message of Christianity that they had never heard, the message of the true and living God. Where's Mrs. Paul? He's got no wife. He's all alone. What conclusions might they draw from that? They might have concluded, well, we all know it's better for a man not to touch a woman. Right, Paul? You're our example. You're our father in the faith. It's good for a man not to touch a woman. More than likely, this was the view that had been adopted or was espoused by some or many in Corinth. The most spiritual life, if you want to imitate the apostle, the most spiritual life is the celibate life. Don't touch a woman. Even if you're married. Well, I'm already married. What do I do? Well, just do like the apostle. Don't touch a woman even if she's your wife. After all, did God not say, be ready for the third day, do not go near a woman? Exodus 19, 15. Didn't David say in 1 Samuel 21, 5, truly women have been kept from us always when I go on an expedition, or as always when I go on an expedition. David said, or God said, if you're going to meet with God, don't go near women. David said, if you're going to be of service to the king, don't go near women. Paul shows up and he's preaching and he doesn't have a wife. It's not hard to see how they might get the idea that the celibate life was indeed the more spiritual, the more God-honoring way of life. If you want to draw near to God, if you really want to walk closely to God, then you had better stay away from women or women from men. If you really want to be ready to serve the Lord faithfully, then you better stay away from women and women from men. You need to keep yourselves and your bodies separated. And we could interject some things that we've seen before about the typical Gnostic idea that the human body was was essentially wicked. So any type of physical pleasure at all that someone could give to their body should be, if you're spiritual, all of that has to die. If it feels good, don't do it. And that's how you know what's wrong. That, that probably played into it too. But they had adopted this, this idea, or some of them have. But we're also given a clue, as if we needed another one, that all was not well in Corinth. Look, notice verse 2, the beginning of verse 2. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality. We'll stop there. We typically read that as, as a general reference to general temptations in this 
area of life. Since there generally is this temptation, then God has made a special provision to keep you from that temptation. But the text actually reads, but because of the sexual immoralities... In other words, because of specific cases of fornication that are happening in the church, each man ought to have his own wife and each wife her own husband. See what's happening. We've already talked about what was probably uh, an ongoing problem in Corinth with sexual immorality. You You see the picture. The Corinthians lived in a world dominated by sexual promiscuity and the normative abuse of marriage. It seems that the so-called spiritual among them were promoting celibacy as the ideal. It's good for a man not to touch a woman. Stay apart. But at the same time, ongoing immorality was evidence that they were not designed for the celibate life. They couldn't do it. So it ended up looking like this. It's good for a man not to touch his wife as long as I'm able to touch everybody else's wife outside of in, in society. It's good for me not to touch my husband, but... I'm I'm, I'm struggling with all of these other men in the outside of the church and in the world. Sexual immorality was ongoing, but they thought they were spiritual because husbands and wives were not touching each other. That's the problem. That's the situation. They were striving after this goal. It's good not to touch a woman. And they were falling further into sexual sin. That's the situation which Paul is addressing Secondly, we see the, the instruction which Paul gives. In verses 2b through 9, Paul speaks to this issue, addressing first those who are married, and second those who are widowed. So to the married, he says, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should, have, or should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind, one of another. This is Paul's counsel to those who are married. And I'm calling this, what he gives them, a gospel-saturated view of marriage. A gospel-saturated view of marriage. Paul does not immediately strike down the proposition of celibacy. Because as we'll see, there is some good to be found in it for some people. So he doesn't say, now that's that's just absolutely absurd. He doesn't say that. For the married among them, celibacy is not an option anymore, he says. And and that's okay. That's normal. He's trying to push them back into the, the gracious and yet natural confines of biblical marriage. In verses 2 through 5, Paul gives a full-bodied picture of marriage as designed by God to help them to see the benefits and blessings of marriage when it's done properly. And it's here that we're going to have to get past our initial thoughts of what is on the surface of the text and get to the underlying principle that Paul is alluding to. These these verses are or, or can be easily abused. The first thing that we see is that a real gospel-saturated view of marriage requires mutual exclusivity. Mutual, both parties agreeing together. Exclusivity, only those two and nobody else. Mutual exclusivity. Verse 2. Each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Each man. Because of the ongoing immoralities among you, he's saying, a man should have his attention focused on his wife, and a wife should have her attention focused on her husband. We call this monogamy. One spouse for life. One man to a woman, one woman to a man. 
And this is nothing more than the creation principle that we see in Genesis 2.24. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. A man, singular, shall hold fast to his wife, singular, one man, one woman, and they, the two of them, become one flesh. Not three of them, not four of them, the two of them become one flesh. And anything outside of that is forbidden by the commandment, you shall not commit adultery. Monogamy. Very simple. Mutual exclusivity. And this is the picture that we would expect to see because this is the picture that we get of the love between Christ and the church. Christ's love for the church is an exclusive love. Ephesians 5.25, Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. The one that He loves is the one He gave Himself up for. The one that He gave Himself up for is the one that He loves. Why? Because there's only one, one bride. And it is a great part of the joy of the church to be able to say, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. We have exclusive rights to Christ as our Lord and Savior and Redeemer and Bridegroom, and He has exclusive rights to us as His bride. We are His. We belong to Him. For us, there is one Lord, Jesus Christ, and He's ours. We can say the Lord is our portion forever. Our heavenly Bridegroom came from heaven for a particular people given to Him by His Father. He prayed for a particular people in the Garden of Gethsemane. I do not pray for those of the world, but for those that you've given me out of the world. Yours they were and you gave them to me. A particular people. He laid down His life as an atonement for the sins of those people. He carried our names then on His shoulders and on His, his breastplate, His heart as a high priest. The names of His people He carried as He entered into the heavenly holy place with His own blood in our stead and in our place. It's there that He lives to make intercession for us, His church, now. The ones that He prayed for in Gethsemane are the ones that He's praying for now. The ones the Father had given Him. And He will come again soon. And you know who He's coming to get? Same group of people. Same ones. The ones given to Him from eternity. The ones He came into the world to live for. The ones that He prayed for. The ones that He died for. The ones that He prays for now. Is, that is the bride that He's coming to get. He knows our names. He knows our faces. He knows who we are. There's not going to be a gathering or a sign-up sheet. or uh, He's going to come and extract that bride for Himself. Why? Because we are exclusively His and He has given Himself exclusively to us so that we can say, The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in Him. We have this hope that He's going to return for the ones that He laid down His life for. And that He laid down His life for the ones that He means to save eternally. Because we are His, and that exclusively. Christ even says to us, If you love Me, you will keep My commandments. So as the church, we have no need to travel all over the world to find out all the various ways that we might serve a whole host of other lovers. No, he says, if you love me, then you will keep my commandments. I will give you my commandments. I will be your Savior. You keep your eye on my commandments to show your love for me because this is exclusive. You don't have to look outside of that. It's very simple, really. He says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. He wants us, as his bride, to abide in his love. And what husband doesn't want that for his wife? What husband says, listen, honey, you know I can't give you what you want. Just go get whatever you need from somebody else as long as you come back 
and make supper, everything will be fine. That, that's a scoundrel who would even imagine or think that way. Men desire their wives to have the, their attention towards them, and wives want their husband's attention toward them. They want it to be exclusive. That's natural. And this is what we see with Christ. He wants us to abide in His love. He says explicitly throughout the Scriptures, don't go chasing after other loves. Don't leave. Don't look at anything else. That was the sin of Israel, right? Whoring after all these other lovers. God says to us in Christ, He looks at us and says, Keep your eyes on Me. I want your love exclusively. And He wants to give His love to us exclusively. His desire is that we stay nestled and secure in His love which is for us and this will do if we love Him. See, this is the gospel picture. Mutual exclusivity. And that's what Paul says. Every man should have his own wife and every wife should have her own husband. Look, at, Keep your eyes on one another. The picture here is not uh, men go out and claim a woman, go out and get a wife, to protect you from the temptations. He's talking to married people. You're already married. A man should have, should be exclusive with and to and have his eyes focused on his own wife. And the wife should have, have her eyes fixed exclusively on her own husband. Mutual exclusivity. Secondly, a gospel-saturated marriage requires mutual responsibility. Mutual responsibility. Verse 3, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. Now it's here, if we're honest, that we begin to find in these verses an opportunity to use them as a weapon, very often taking them and reading them in a way completely contrary to what Paul actually means here. We have a tendency to read this as if Paul were giving each spouse the, the right to turn against their spouse with, a, with an outstretched finger and start telling their spouse what they ought to be doing. You owe me. I've got my rights. And that is the exact opposite of what he's trying to do. That's dead wrong. This verse isn't meant to turn us against one another but to bring us together with one another, recognizing that a real marriage lays mutual responsibilities on each spouse. But that is not so that a husband can come and remind his wife, hey, don't you know you owe me my conjugal rights? Nor a wife comes to her husband and says, well, don't you know, Paul says, you owe me my conjugal rights. No. This is so that a husband can look himself in the mirror and say, you have a responsibility to your wife. And a wife can look herself in the mirror and say, you have a responsibility to your husband. There are mutual responsibilities. But nowhere are we, are we ever told, hey, husbands, get your wife alone at some point. Just, let, just remind her that she needs to submit to you. Because doesn't it say wives submit to your husbands? It, it doesn't say husbands submit your wives to yourselves. It's the job of the wife to submit. And here, at the, in the same way, it's the job of the wife to consider what she has a, responsi a responsibility with to her husband and the husband to consider his responsibility to his wife. And this recognition of mutual responsibility will lead both spouses to be asking what they can do to serve the other. I have a responsibility to my wife. Therefore, I don't, I don't go to her and say, you know you owe me dot, dot, dot. I say, dear, what can I do to serve you? How can I help you? And the same for the wife, to her husband. Not you owe me dot, 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 but how can I serve you? How can I help you? What do you need? Notice the language. The husband should give. Likewise, the wife. Implication is the wife should give. The aim of both spouses should be to give rather than to get. And the giving here is dictated by what best serves my spouse. 
To use this verse in any other way is to distort Paul's purpose. He's not giving husbands a card that they can pull out from time to time. He's giving them a little message that they need to stick on their mirror and read it every day. You have a responsibility to your wife. And wives, you have a responsibility to your husband. Take that into consideration and serve one another. And again, is this not what we see explicitly in the gospel between Christ and His bride? Has our Lord not given us what we needed more than anything else? Is that not what He did? He didn't come and say, hey, listen, I demand this and this and this and this. No, He showed up and He said, I see that you're a bunch of sinners. What sinners needed is to be reconciled to God, to have their sins atoned for, washed away through a dying substitute. So that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do what is required to serve you. And that's what we sinners need more than anything. Romans 5.8 says that God shows His love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Our bridegroom died for us. He took our sins upon Himself. He bore our sins in His body on the tree. He, didn't, he was not complicit in our sins. He didn't come to us and try to make us feel good in our sins by sort of acting as a, as a comforter or an accomplice in our sins like Adam did who was with his wife and ate the fruit. Christ didn't do that. But Christ came and took hold of that ancient serpent and He walked him straight to the judgment tree of good and evil in His own death and destroyed all the power that He had by dying in the place of His bride. That's what Christ has done. And what ought to be our response as a bride to this bridegroom? Here I am. Send me. Lord, if you would die for me, what would I not do in service to you? I'll take up my cross. I'll follow you wherever you go. I'll, I'll, I'll do whatever you ask me to do. I'm here to serve. I'm here to be a slave of Christ. As Paul says in Ephesians 5, the church submits to Christ. Mutual responsibilities. Now, in order to steward those responsibilities well, we must also recognize that, thirdly, a gospel-saturated marriage requires mutual sensitivity. Mutual sensitivity. Verse 4. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. And again, I'll say if you read this verse thinking that it gives you the right to turn toward your spouse and begin to make demands upon them, you've read it wrong. It, 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 it's not saying the husband has the authority over his wife's body. The wife has the authority over her husband's body. That, that's not the point. Again, Paul's intention is to show the beauty and glory of biblical marriage, to bring back together husbands and wives who had bought this lie that they shouldn't touch each other. And he's saying, hold on, no, there's, there, there are other things to consider. And again, what he says about a wife or to a wife is to be taken and applied by a wife. If you're not a wife, then you can't come to this verse and say to a one who is your wife, well, you know, Paul said the wife's body doesn't... No, no, no. You're a husband. So you need to think about what he said about a husband's body. You're living in a husband's body. You've, you've been given your instructions. If you're a wife, you're living in a wife's body. You've been given your instructions. And the word authority here is not meant to be taken as, as, as rule or anything like that. It's, it's just a reference to possession. The, what he's saying is the husband is not the exclusive possessor of his body. He can't just think of himself when it comes to his body. And the wife is not the exclusive possessor of her body. She's not the only one that she needs to consider when it comes to her body. A married man has to recognize that his body doesn't exist simply for him. It's, your body is not there just for your pleasure, your comfort, your happiness. Your body is there so that you can think about using it for your wife. You have to consider her. And a married woman must recognize that her body doesn't exist simply for her. But she must consider her husband. Why? Because the two have become one flesh. Each person must recognize 
that they belong to each other. They cannot act as though the other isn't there or that the other is irrelevant. I have, I'm tempted to say we don't get me time. I think I'll come back and, and qualify that in a minute. Now, if your wife says, I think you, you need some me time, that's, that, that might work. Or if a husband says that to the wife, you need some you time. But you, you don't get to just walk up and say, I need some me time. Well, you, you need to consider that your body does not exist just for you. you, you maybe ask for permission. I was thinking about this. But I also want to consider you. How can I serve you? Am I being selfish? We can't act as though the other isn't there or isn't irrelevant. Rather, husbands and wives, whether in thinking of their physical bodies or any other part of their lives, must be consistently sensitive to the needs or desires of the other. Mutual sensitivity. If we're honest... We are typically really good at being consistently sensitive to all of our needs. Not so great at being sensitive to the needs of our spouse. What he's saying is, you need to be sensitive to your spouse. When you think about your body, think about your spouse's needs. That's what he's saying. And, and the gospel imagery, again, is very clear. Paul says in Romans 15, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Lest each of us, he says, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell upon me. Christ did not please himself. So these verses are not, again, they're not a card that says, hey, I'm here to please myself. Throw it on the table. Remember Paul said, no, think like Christ. Christ did not please himself. To the Philippians... He says, let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And, and how much more should that, these principles be applied when we're with our closest and dearest neighbor who is our spouse? You're not there to please yourself, but them. You're not there to think of only your own interests, but of theirs. Christ didn't please Himself. And it was the mind of Christ which looked to the interests of His church. And looking to the interests of His church, He took the form of a servant and was born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. That was for our interests, not His. He didn't need to be saved. He didn't have any sins to atone for. He's the very form and express image of God. He is the fullness of all perfection. He did that because he was looking to our interests. And that is to be our mind. I'm to be sensitive to the interests of my spouse. Not my own. Mutual sensitivity. The question is how can I lay down my life for my spouse? Fourthly, a gospel-saturated marriage requires mutual priorities. Mutual priorities, verse 5, do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Again, he's combating the idea of celibacy and he says essentially, hey, you're married, so that's off the table. You don't get that option anymore. But there may be occasions where this sort of thing is needful. What criteria defines those occasions? Mutual agreement, mutual devotion, and mutual reunion. Both spouses must agree. Both spouses must see the usefulness of it for the sake of personal devotion to the Lord. And both spouses must recognize that they need to come together. This is not going to be a lifelong thing. And I'm calling this mutual priorities. In a gospel-saturated view of marriage, both spouses recognize that their personal intimacy, which is extremely important, necessary to a healthy marriage, must take second place to their devotion to the Lord. It's always second. Always. Husbands, you must require 
If there, any, if, if there is any demand you want to make as a husband, here, I'm going to give you the liberty to make this demand. You must demand that your wife love the Lord more than she loves you. And wives, you must demand that your husband loves the Lord more than he loves you. And this way, both of you will be ready and willing to push one another further and further in personal, private devotion to the Lord, even if that means times of separation. And, and many take and, and read this with an application that goes far beyond sexual intimacy. We, we think of just sexual intimacy, but, just, but many take this and apply it to just the general habits of life together. Uh, times of solitude or times of ministry are often needful. It, it might be as big as an overnight trip. It might be as brief as an evening alone. I, when, when, if, if I get invited to go somewhere overnight or for weeks, my first thought is not, well, I've been invited, I have to go. My first thought is, well, let me talk to my wife. Let's make sure that this is a good and healthy and safe thing to do. The understanding between them must be that neither of them is God to the other. We have to keep that in mind. Husbands, you have to recognize that your wife needs something that you can't provide, something far more than you'll ever be able to provide. And wives, you must recognize that your husband needs something far more than you will ever need to be able to provide. When that's mutually understood, we both agree that we want the other to love the Lord more than we lo they love us. We both agree that they need something from someone that I can never provide, and that is from God Himself. If that's understood, then we will be desiring to push one another closer and closer in our devotion to God. And when that's mutually understood, then a marriage is going to be healthy and God-centered. Even Christ Himself would often withdraw from the people that He was ministering to, from the people that He came to save in order to be alone with His Father. If there's any man in here who can say, I, don't, I, I need less than Jesus Christ needed, any woman in here who says, you know, Jesus needed alone time with God, but I don't need that. I'm pretty good. My feet hit the floor. I can begin to deal with my kids and wrestle with the house. And I can do it just fine. Then... You're, you're, you're in a dangerous position. That's a dangerous place to, to be in, uh, of utter independence from God. But we as human beings, we need that. If Christ needed it, we needed it. Without time alone with our Heavenly Father, all of us are going to make awful husbands and miserable wives. So we have to have that mutual or shared priority that if there is a time where we break from regular habits, regular life together, it's going to be agreed upon. It's going to be in order to devote ourselves to the Lord. And it's going to be understood, where's, where's the end point of this? Where does this come to a stop? Fifthly, gospel-saturated marriage requires redemptive historical reality or realism. Redemptive historical realism in verses 6 and 7. He says, now as a concession, not a command I say this, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind to one of another. What he's saying is, I'm not commanding marriage. I'm not commanding all of the attendant obligations of marriage. I'm permitting it. So for those who are married, there is a requirement. There are ways that you are to act with your spouse. There are actions that you are to perform with your spouse. But if you're not married, he's saying, I'm not requiring people to be married or to go about these things. This is a permission. Again, their, their thinking was it's best to avoid all of this. He's saying, I, I'm, I'm saying it is absolutely okay to live in a God-honoring biblical marriage. But he says, I'm not commanding anybody to do this. He says, I wish that all were as I myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Paul was probably a widower. And he was content to remain single. What he's saying is, some can handle that lifestyle, some can't. It was clear most of the Corinthians could not. Because of the sexual immoralities. You need to, you need to get back to living the way you're supposed to live. That's what he's saying. And I say that this is a redemptive historical reality that he's addressing. 
Marriage as designed by God is good and useful and productive. After the fall, marriage is still good and useful and productive, but it also has difficulties. And the reality in a fallen world is that there are some people who are called and equipped by God to forego all of those difficulties for Christ's sake. And they will be content with that lifestyle. He's saying, I'm, I'm not commanding anyone to be married. Uh, married. I'm permitting you to be married. I wish everyone could carry on their life like I do, but I understand that everyone is not called to that lifestyle. Jesus Himself said in Matthew 19, there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. In the present state of history and the building of the church of Christ in the world, there will be those like Paul who are not called to be married or remarried, but they are called to devote themselves to the Lord. And our view of marriage has to recognize that. That's, that's not uh, unbiblical. Is it strange in the sense that it will be a, a minority? Sure. Um, but it's not unbiblical. Paul doesn't require these things, but he does permit them. Now, I will say in that regard that this concept of singleness or, or, or celibacy, this lifestyle, is always in order to serve the kingdom. So these are not, this is not the woman who says, well, I want to be single because I, I, I like having 30 cats and nobody wants to live in my apartment because they, they can't, nobody else can breathe in here. I've, I've learned to endure it. That's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about the man who says, well, I think I want to be single because I want to go camping and hunting and fishing and work on cars whenever I want to. That's, that's not here. This, this would be the picture of somebody who is so devoted to the service of the Lord, they literally don't have time to focus attention on the needs of another person. Now, if, if that's not, usually if that's not already your bent in early adulthood, it's probably safe to assume you should, you're, you're, you're going to get married. These people are usually marked out pretty early as so uh, single-eyed in their devotion to the work of the kingdom not the idea of the work, but the work itself, that these things are uh, irrelevant to them. Marriage, is, it just doesn't enter their mind. It's not as though they sit and, oh, I wish I was married, I wish I was married, I wish I was married, but I need to serve the Lord. No, these, these people are, are serving the Lord, and that is their contentment. But that, that is a biblical place to be, a biblical position. In verses 8 and 9, he speaks to the widowed among them concerning the same issue. So we have the married, now we have those who have been widowed. Look at verses 8 and 9. To the unmarried and the widows I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Now I said last week, and, and I'm, I'm still reading this, as if that he's addressing those who have been widowed, those whose spouses have died, and that the word unmarried is a reference to men whose wives have died. Now clearly, I need to give some sort of defense for that because the word unmarried is used elsewhere in this chapter and it doesn't mean that. So why, why would I even think this or why would anybody believe that unmarried is a reference to widowers? First, five, five lines of reasoning just in, in defense of this. Number one, the term unmarried when applied to males can or would include widowers as well as bachelors, as well as the divorced, as well as, well as teenagers, as well as young people, anybody who is or any male who is unmarried. So, in that sense, it can refer to a widower and the context or the category of person that's being addressed in this chapter would dictate that. And there are many biblical words that are like this. They, they could mean a bunch of different things. The context of the usage, not Strong's Concordance, the context is what tells you how you should read this word. In other words, the Bible tells you how to interpret it. So it can mean that. That's number one. Number two... Throughout this section, chapter 7, Paul addresses males and females in each category, every time. 
if you, what we just looked at. Uh, a man should have his own wife. A wife should have her own husband. Um, in, in verse 10, uh, a wife should not separate from her husband. A husband should not divorce his wife. In the next section, a brother has a wife who's an unbeliever. A woman has a husband who's an unbeliever. Uh, down in, in the section 25 and following, you have virgins, the betrothed. Are you bound to a wife? That's a man. And then it says... Um, if you do marry, you've not sinned. If a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Man, woman, in, in that section as well. The, the point is, every time it goes, it addresses male, female, male, female, or male, female, female, male, male, female, female, male. Every time it addresses both. Now we come to this section. We have the widows. That's a female. Where does he address widowers? If it's not here then he doesn't address them at all. They're never mentioned. Uh, which would be strange, seeing that the average lifespan of a young lady in this time period was probably 25 or 30 years old. Many of them died from childbearing. It was very common for a man to lose his wife. So to just act as though widowers don't exist would be very strange. So that's a second line of reasoning. Third, the Greek word for widower, there is a word, but the Greek word for widower is never used in Scripture anywhere and even outside of biblical literature, it's still rarely used. Which would lead us to say, if Paul had used the word for a widower here, that would be more strange than if he used unmarried as a reference to widowers. It just wasn't a common word. Number four, if Paul does mean to refer to all unmarried people by the word unmarried then why does he mention widows separately? That would be like saying to the widows and the widows, because widows are unmarried people. He would also be in this section telling divorced people, because they're unmarried, he would be telling divorced people to remarry, which the Bible always forbids, and he himself forbids in verse 11. In verse 5, he says, they should remain Single as I am, that's the way the ESV translates it, or literally, they should abide as I. Paul himself then would fit in this category. They should abide as I. As a Pharisee of Pharisees, it's almost unthinkable that Paul would have never been married. Jewish men, it was a given, you get married. Pharisees almost a requirement, and at some levels of pharisaical uh, progress, the rabbis, you were required to be married. You must be married. Well, Paul was a Pharisee of Pharisees. So it is hard to imagine that this man was never married. Not impossible, but just difficult. So, he was either divorced or widowed. Now, seeing that he addresses divorcees in the next section... And widows here, it's likely that Paul was a widower and therefore he could encourage other widowers to abide as I. He doesn't talk to the divorced people and say, you're divorced, stay single as I have. He says that to the widow, widow, widows or, and unmarried. So put all of that together. And this is not just me. This is normal. Um, you put all this together. It seems like in this section he's saying, I'm talking to the men whose wives have died and the women whose husbands have died. And he applies basically the same principles that he just applied, the redemptive historical principle that he just applied to those uh, before. He says, I'm not demanding that you get married. I'm not commanding you to be married, nor am I forbidding marriage. He does mention that it's, it would be good if they could stay in that state, it is good for them to remain or abide as I. It's a singleness for a widow or widower can, as it was in Paul's case, allow someone to be very useful. It's not a, a curse or, or anything like that to be, to have lost a spouse for a wife or a man. In 1 Timothy 5, Paul encourages younger widows to marry. While older widows were an, a class among the early churches known for their freedom to serve the church. We've talked about that before. I, I, when, I, when Paul says, uh, do not let a woman be enrolled, a widow be enrolled, unless she is 
more than 60 years old, et cetera, et cetera. I don't think he's saying don't help widows who are 59 years old. I think the enrollment there was into that class of servant widows who helped serve the church. That's why there were um, requirements or stipulations that they had to meet, just like with elders and deacons. So he would say to the younger widows, you should probably go ahead and get married. But the older widows served a great purpose in the church, and Paul himself, as a widower, was able to serve a great purpose in the church. So there was usefulness to that. But assuming the entrance of sin and sexual temptation, he says, if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. It's better to marry than to burn with passion. So again, we see a biblical and gospel-saturated view of marriage is useful. It's if, if you can stay single, stay single. If you can't, get married. That's what he's saying. Do You are free. Widowers and widows are free in this regard. Now, skipping over quickly to verses 39 and 40, there are restrictions upon that remarriage. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she's free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. That is widows, and I, I, I think it's acceptable to include widowers in this. They're, they're free to marry if they choose, but they are not free to marry whomever they choose. They must marry a Christian. They must marry in the Lord, only to a Christian. A Christian may only marry another Christian. So we see that while the Corinthians were falling for the idea that true spirituality requires celibacy, whether you were married or not married, after the death of a spouse, Paul shows that a, a biblical and complete understanding of marriage requires and also strengthens grace within us and therefore in no way detracts from a person's spirituality. You can be married and carry out that marriage in a biblical and gospel-saturated way, and that will serve your spirituality. That will help you, strengthen you, sanctify you, and grow. That's not going to take away from you being a spiritual person. Now, if you want to be married and then try to conduct it in a way that's unbiblical, as they were doing, that's going to be very harmful. That's not going to be helpful. Are there benefits to remaining single? Sure. Are there benefits to marriage after the death of a, of a spouse? Sure. But that stuff has to be governed by God's design. So in closing, we're reminded that it is marriage that is a picture of the gospel, not simply getting married. That happens in a moment, in an instant. A man and a woman come together. Do you? I do. Do you? I do. I pronounce you. Okay, you just got married. That's a start. That does have, give us a picture of the gospel. Marriage, the whole thing, the whole life together, the way that we treat one another all the time and the way that we think about ourselves in relation to our spouse and how, how all of that is intertwined and must work together. The whole thing, marriage, is a picture of the gospel. When a marriage that is a life together is characterized by mutual exclusivity, mutual responsibility, mutual sensitivity, mutual priorities and devotedness to God, and a clear understanding of the realities of living in a fallen world and constant dependence upon God's grace, that kind of marriage placards the gospel before the eyes of the world, not to mention in front of your own eyes every day as you are living it. And very often it might be a negative picture. Every day you are reminded, gospel's not this. Gospel's not this. I'm glad the gospel's not this. I'm not doing as I should. I'm thankful for the gospel. But it will drive you to either praise God for His gospel or to your knees begging that He would give you the grace that comes from Christ. But when you live this life together, the whole life, that's what <coughs> placards the gospel before men. It's at that point that marriage becomes an incredible gift from God. Is it an incredible thing whenever the officiant says, do you, I do, do you, I do, therefore I pronounce you? Is that an incredible thing? It kind of, in a moment, it's, it's, it's enjoyable to watch. It's a delightful thing. One of the things that I say in, the, in my 
my marriage notes is it, it's not the first day of your marriage, but the last day of your marriage that really counts. It's not how you start, but how you finish. How you live from this point out is really going to tell the tale. And it's through that that we see it's an incredible gift from God. A life of marriage together is where we're taught to lay down our lives for the sake of our spouse. A life of marriage together is where we learn how proud and selfish we are. By God's grace, we're trained to renounce sin. We learn what it looks like to serve someone else. If God blesses with children, that's just amplified more and more. Only then, when we become like Christ in His death, that is dying to ourselves, dying to all of our, our needs and wants in order to serve one another, when we become like Christ in His death, then we will begin to know Him and the power of His resurrection. We'll know what it means to live for somebody else. But you've got to die to yourself first. And this is what is required here. This, it, is, it is meant to let us see the gospel every day, every single day. We can't get away from it. Our God loves us so much and He knows that we need the gospel so much that He says, I'm going to give you this gift so that you cannot escape the realities of the gospel. I'm not going to let you get away from it. Even when you fail, I'm going to rub your nose in it so that you see that the gospel is so much better than anything that you can, you can ever uh, attempt to display to, to remind you how much you need the saving grace of Christ in your marriage. Well, let's pray through these things together.